Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. I'm so excited you could hear it in my voice. My co-host Summer is actually in the studio with me. Something I'm very grateful for. Spending all these years with you. Coming to the station. Putting on this show. <laughs> and you're putting up with me. I hope that... Um, We that, are very that you had a good year, Samar. Alhamdulillah, I despite can't the hurricane, it was a, it was a, it was not an easy year for you. Uh, no, it wasn't uh, for many, many uh, reasons. But the hurricane was really the unexpected hit because but, who would get uh, hit by two hurricanes in 18 years? But you survived. Alhamdulillah, you're still here. Alhamdulillah, what, what does Alhamdulillah mean? Thank God. This is true talk on WMNF. Um, we've been on this station now for some. 18 years? Since 2003. Is that how many years is that? Uh-huh. No, it's, yeah, 18. Uh, next year is going to be tw- actually 20 years. Are you serious? Yeah. I've been doing this show with you for 20 years. This is ridiculous. I have circled the earth maybe five, six times. Well, for the longest time, we've been on Friday, and then they moved us to Thursday and for the first time in our 20-year history. And I think we lost a lot. Some listeners, they thought we just stopped airing our show, but we're here. We're on Thursday. So if you know anyone still listening to us on Friday, tell them to switch over to Thursday where they can still find us. On today's program, we're still talking about nothing, about none other than the World Cup in Qatar, which concluded um, on Sunday, was it? Yeah, in a dramatic... Oh my gosh. Uh, final match, which some are saying, and I maybe agree with them, it's the best World Cup final in history. And they had this drama of Lionel Messi, who was, you know, people regard as the best player in the world. Uh, and he's gotten every single trophy, every single, you know, win except the World Cup trophy. Mm-hmm. And it was this dramatic moment, you know, whether, and he, he was almost denied. It came down to, did you watch the game? Uh, I watched uh, like half of it, and then I have no idea. Even the how first half? No, like in the middle. Okay. After they scored several uh, goals, and every time I thought, okay, that's it, I'm not gonna watch. And then uh, the penalties. I saw the penalties for 80 minutes almost of the game. Basically, you know, it was two zero for Argentina. They thought the game is finished, and then out of nowhere, in two <laughs> minutes, France ties it up. And then, you know, they go to penalty, they go to overtime, and and there's so many close calls. Um, I don't know. My son was happy because he's been a Lionel Messi fan for years. And even when he was younger, he used to even call his screen name when he first got introduced to, when he was first introduced to... um, Soccer? uh, Football? Football, or no, online computers. He was... um, He would call his, you know, when you could make a name, a screen name, he would call himself Messi or something. Oh. So he was always, and I remember in 2014 when the game happened, and I think Argentina was playing against Germany, and Germany beat Argentina, and my son was so sad. He was, I think he was crying. So he was happy Messi finally won the trophy. So we're going to be talking about that uh, after this short, and then we're going to have a special guest, Hatim Bazian, Dr. Hatim Bazian, mm-hmm. all the way from California. He'll be joining us right after this music break. I think it's really early there for him if he happens to be in California, but we'll hear from him in a moment. This is True Talk on WMNF. We'll be right back. Good morning. 
back to True Talk on WMNF 80.5. Um, Ahmed and Summer. Summer, you turned down my headphones. Um, Summer picked this song. It's They're singing about Philistine in Palestine, but it seems like they're Moroccan. Why'd you pick this song? Uh, it's very famous in the Arab world, something called Al-Tras, or the, um, the people who go and follow the teams, the soccer teams or the football the teams. The Ultras. Ultras. Like they're ultra fans? Yeah. So one of the, they sing a lot of songs. This is one of the, their most famous songs, and it's about Gaza and about Palestine, lamenting the fact that everybody is fighting them or not helping them, including uh, Arab uh, countries. Um, will, you, a- will you be accused of anti-Semitism for playing this song? Did you check all the lyrics and run it by yeah, does the... It- um, no, I the Jewish try. Federation of Tampa Bay to make sure that you're not going to... The reason I mention that, because as you know, uh, there are some people that constantly listen to this station. Just because we play the song or we choose a song somewhere, right? It doesn't mean they endorse all the language, uh, but it's a song to celebrate Palestine. It's not uh, anti-Israel or anti-Semitic. But somewhere our guest is on. Go ahead and introduce them. I'm very pleased to say that we have in the first half an hour Dr. Hatem Bazian, who is a continuing lecturer at the Asian American Asian Diaspora Studies at Berkeley University in California. Um, he lectures on uh, colonialism, post-colonial studies, uh, um, race, uh, critical race theory. Muslim Recording American. in progress. Okay. And that was Zoom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that this was not happens. the FBI. No, this is what happens when Ahmed runs the board. I, I should stop uh, allowing you that. Good morning, Dr. Hatem. I know it's very um, early where you are, and you have been writing extensively about uh, the media coverage of the uh, Mondial, as we say it, <laughs> the Arab world yeah. and the rest of the world. Um, and we thought, you know, it's going to be around the human rights, around the labor force, around the typical things that might uh, be really very important to talk about uh, because we do not like uh, to abuse uh, migrant workers and uh, maybe also the LBGTQ uh, issue. I know it is sensitive in the Arab and Muslim world, but still um, we can understand their concern. But it really went way beyond that, almost um, to the degree where uh, players, Moroccan players hugging their moms was paraded like uh, when uh, monkeys hold their uh, little baby monkeys. All this, you started by saying this is typical Orientalism and the very famous Edward Said had a kind of a way to explain all this racist, Islamophobic, type of coverage because it went way, way, way beyond uh, migrant workers and uh, rights for gays. Can you explain to us? Uh, For sure. Thank you uh, for having me and uh, it's good to see you and Ahmed. Uh, Whenever we approach uh, areas of the Arab uh, Muslim world and by extension the global south, uh, we are we deal with the phenomena of what Edward Said calls uh, Orientalist geography. Uh, in essence, that you enter into a, a different 
terrain, a different territory, different geography, that begins to look both at the people and the territories in some of the most racist, um, uh, malicious type of consideration that we're not really looking at humans per se, uh, but the realm of subhumanness. There are legitimate critiques to be had for not only uh, Qatar, uh, Gulf, uh, or any modern nation states. Uh, but when it came to the coverage, uh, it immediately shifted into uh, Orientalist geography, and I say Orientalist Islamophobic geography. So all of this, uh, all of the tropes of what happens in uh, this Orientalist terrain uh, gets to be fronted as the way to cover uh, this, uh, the Mondial, the World Cup, and it becomes a crystallizing of a whole layered legacy of race, racism, race, racialization, and racial discourse. So, one, taking the issue of uh, the figures that were being presented. Uh, one, uh, that immediately the number that began to be thrown out, that there are uh, thousands of workers that died as a result of the building of the stadiums or the infrastructure. And in this sense, it's basically saying that there is no concern for anything other than uh, 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 the uh, preparation for the World Cup. And almost these, uh, the workers' death is almost can be seen as uh, either deliberate or uh, no consideration whatsoever. And I raised the question uh, that many of the com uh, many of the companies that had the contracts for the infrastructure building were Western Western companies and corporations, uh, whether it's in Europe, United States, and so on. So if the issue or the uh, legitimate concern of the death of any worker on the front line is a concern, uh, then why is it not critique, not only Qatar, but critique the uh, international corporations that were at uh, the site working uh, since uh, 2010 uh, all the way up to the present? That's That's one issue. The second, in in the debate that was projected on the uh, workers also almost erased the totality of violation of labor rights uh, that are taking place especially in the uk where just they went almost uh, uh belligerently in their coverage not only racist but belligerent they're having one of the largest uh, labor strike, nurses, trainer workers, and so on, that's been going on for quite some time. And uh, with the Brexit, all the rights of the labor has been under tremendous duress by the Tory party. So in here, it reminds me of colonial legacy, where uh, during the British colonization and uh, rule over Egypt, uh, on the local scene, they were projecting themselves as being the harbingers of civilization and progress, while in the UK they were opposing uh, suffrage rights and enfranchisement rights for women, property rights, and so on. So we see this dynamics in there. And if we're talking about also workers' rights in the United States during COVID, we have some of the most atrocious 
uh, type of treatment for workers. Uh, I remember the case of Tyson Food, uh, where had one of the largest percentages of uh, workers that actually died as a result of COVID because the company itself, it's one of the largest meatpacking companies in the country, mm-hmm. uh, did not provide workers with uh, uh, protection and equipment for protections and so on that resulted in large number of cases on their plant. And then not to bring Elon Musk, uh, who basically never misses an opportunity to uh, continue to uh, violate labor rights, uh, including during uh, COVID with Tesla and so on. So I'm putting this not that the comparison is to be held, but just to show that the coverage of the workers were really insidious in a sense of tarnishing the uh, World Cup and Qatar's uh, hosting of it, yep. specifically because it's an Arab and Muslim country. It just they resorted back to this Orientalist geography, and that's how the discussion just continued from one way, one step to the other. Now, the LGBTQ issue, again, it's an issue that almost all of the world became uh, uh, a focal point for Qatar's uh, 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 policies and Qatar's uh, uh, determination relative to uh, the rising of the flag or not which also, in essence, makes the Arab and Muslim as the uniquely, uh, the unique uh, construct that uh, a violation of LGBTQ issues is almost the singular uh, focus on the Arab as a distinction from other parts of the world in, in this sense. So that also became a driving force in order to actually uh, put the Qatar and the Arab and Muslim world in a unique category of being in the realm of that they're not keeping up with, quote, the civilizational discourse. Okay. Let me uh, just, uh, Dr. Hatem, remind our listeners we're talking to Professor Hatem Bazian, who is a lecturer um, at uh, Berkeley University. So now almost uh, the uh, game is over, and we spoke last week uh, with uh, another professor about what is the the uh, coverage. Now it's ending. <laughs> And then there is this uh, hysteria uh, going because of the bisht or because of the honorary um, um, known in the Gulf region uh, and draping it on um, Messi, uh, the very famous Argentinian player. Can you address that? And do you think really it wasn't appropriate to do this or it was part of being also racist and Islamophobic the way they dealt with the bisht uh, that the prince of uh, Qatar uh, bestowed on Messi. Well, let me just put this, the context, the context of the bisht in the series of demonization that occurs. Before the World Cup, uh, the French press put out a few cartoons, in essence, projected Qatar as being the uh, uh, land or a place where terrorism is sponsored and supported with players, Qatari players, projected uh, in the cartoon carrying grenades and uh, machine guns and so on. So that's the French. Then the German um, uh, press uh, took uh, the image of three Moroccans raising a single finger put the top uh, photo of them in the dressing room and underneath them basically saying that they're giving allegiance or replicating an allegiance to ISIS. So put the image of ISIS right there. 
Then we get the Danish uh, press uh, or the Danish TV, uh, Channel 2, uh, the commentator holding a picture of monkeys. Again, maybe he was looking at his own heritage, but that's a side issue. He took the picture of the monkeys and basically comparing the Moroccan players who are hugging and dancing with their mother, especially Abu Fal, and uh, basically saying that this is uh, they, the monkeys um, uh, get together, attach each other in similar way, whether it's in Qatar or in Morocco. So re- representation. Then we get into the Bisht, in essence, saying that, uh, especially in British and other European press, for the most part, uh, less so in the U.S., I have not seen as much uh, 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 type of coverage of that nature, that this ruined the World Cup, the most important moment of the World Cup. Uh, and in this sense, it began to uh, say that the Qataris, uh, and they began to say to speak about uh, Amir Tamim, that uh, they are uh, rich and uh, ruining and trying to imprint their cultural icons and so on. And again, uh, this is taking every element that the that Qatar or the organization of the World Cup to be seen through a Eurocentric Orientalist lens. Uh, one, Messi did not object. Again, we see him in terms of his picture, chin up and waiting for this to be uh, draped over him. Uh, uh, the uh, Argentinian actually also did not object. They In their Instagram, they say truly king. So basically, they saw this as an honoring of uh, uh, Messi and uh, reports showing that many within uh, both Argentinian fan and fans based in Qatar as well as in Argentina are beginning to yeah. actually don the same bisht as a reflection or as a way to express their uh, affinity with that step that has been uh, taken uh, taken Ac- place. Third, actually, actually, there was sorry, sorry, doctor, but actually, yeah. uh, yesterday on Instagram, I got so many businesses that are now promoting bisht as for bathrobes or swimming robes or women's robes. <laughs> so they actually well, popularized uh, it with their uh, stupidity, the racist yeah. uh, European coverage. Go ahead, then sorry. Also, there was an image that was put of uh, Diego Maradona. Mm-hmm. Not only they did not put the bisht on it, but they also they had they put the uh, headscarf with the aqal uh, in the processions that took place in Argentina. So it seems that uh, if it if it's anything relative to the to representation or elements of Arab culture and uh, society, it it's is an objection. The last part I want to say is that uh, uh, the uh, trophy that was given to Messi is sponsored by Budweiser. And you could see that Budweiser is there, Budweiser in all of uh, the advertisements. So why is it that uh, the most, uh, what you call, uh, uh, valuable player award that is given uh, with Budweiser emboldened on it on the front does not ruin the World Cup. Yeah, amazing. But the Emir of Qatar giving a, uh, a a gift or a dressing him, which is really one of the highest honors. Again, we could speak about royalty and so on, a side issue, but it's one of the highest yeah. honors for a cloak to be draped upon an individual. It's a sign of utmost respect, as if uh, both uh, the Qatari as well as the 
uh, Amir is saying that he is the uh, the, the greatest of all times as a yeah. player, and as such, we are recognizing your accomplishment. And uh, this was the framework that then uh, 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 British, French, and other uh, commentators, after the fact, began to actually uh, to began to use racist framing uh, for it. And again, it's a legitimate point of discussion. One can discuss whether it's whether it's a good time or not. Those are legitimate, but the way it was being framed, yeah. it was framed uh, in es- an Orientalist especially, type of framing. Especially, doctor, that Pelé, there is a very famous uh, of the famous uh, uh, player. With Mexico, uh, Mexican som- hat. Sombrero, I think they call it. Plus, yeah. for instance, in the, I think it was the Olympics, uh, winners mm-hmm. would be wearing the uh, kind of a reef uh, in Athens. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's been done before and some friend of mine said, you know, if this was held in Egypt and they wore some uh, pharaonic uh, garb or anything, nobody would be objecting because in the Western mind, this is not uh, like any pharaonic sum- symbols are not associated with Islam or Arabs. But... Uh, there is something interesting that happened. So, okay, we're Arabs, we're Muslims, so, you know, maybe this is how Europe deals with us. However, something happened with the French team after they have lost. Could you address that? Oh, well, the French players that um, Coleman and uh, trying to remember the other player because they uh, missed the uh, penalty, one missed the penalty kick, another one was uh, saved by Martinez. Uh, they have been facing an avalanche of racist comments, uh, of some of the most despicable display of uh, racism toward black uh, players, uh, calling them, referencing them as being apes, uh, telling them to go back to the jungle, uh, uh, not trusting African players. This is at a time, and again, also uh, uh, Mbappe himself uh, likewise faced all types of racist comments in the earlier part of the game, and then it continued thereafter. Uh, uh, which begs the question that uh, at the time in the second half, uh, there were uh, literally 10 players of the 11, if you take the, uh, uh, the, uh, the goalkeeper, 10 of the players were of African descent uh, that were playing, and they changed the dynamics of the game. Uh, and where would France be without their uh, uh, immigrant uh, uh, African heritage black players, and in particular Mbappe, uh, who basically single-handedly uh, forced um, the equalizer and then uh, also was very close to winning the game for France. So, And this reminds us of Benzema's, uh, Karim Benzema's statement. He says when he scores, uh, he's French. When they lose, meaning where he fails to score and we lose, he's an Arab. And in some other comments, he's dirty Arab. So European... Uh, soccer fields uh, have seen some of the most malicious, despicable displays of racism. It's not unique to France. We saw it in the UK uh, final in the European uh, Championship, where Saka, who also missed a penalty, 
faced uh, likewise all types of um, bullying, harassment uh, because of his blackness. Uh, Lukaku of Belgium has faced a constant stream of racism, discrimination, uh, and taunting because of his blackness. Uh, the Italian league uh, have had constant experience of black players, uh, African players, uh, facing uh, all types of racism, so much so that uh, banana peels are thrown in the field around them, uh, uh, expressions of calling them monkeys and so on is uh, almost like everyday type of experience uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Italy that we have many instances where uh, players will stop playing and they'll say uh, we will not continue this game uh, with the taunting and the racist expression that is coming from the stands. So uh, he put an article uh, says uh, that says racism in France and Europe is normative, meaning that this, this is every day. It's not an exception. The exception is that the, uh, uh, the press and the league uh, right now, because of after the World Cup, that they want to take issue. And I think the French uh, Foot National Football Association uh, is going to take legal actions against those who have... Uh, posted these uh, racist comments. But again, this has been going on for some time. And that there is multiple questions to be asked. And why now? That's one second. Uh, mm. Social media spaces. And I know many of us in here, when we post Free Palestine, you immediately get what you call alert. And sometimes you get your post taken down. How come that, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and the rest, or uh, TikTok and so on, allow uh, this type of uh, racist garbage to be there presented uh, and without them themselves actually uh, taking it down before the ability to uh, be posted? And why is it that all these individuals that post these racist comments are not actually blocked. That's a good point, uh, uh, Dr. Bazian. If you're just yes. joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to uh, Professor Hatem Bazian. He's uh, from the University of California in Berkeley on the West Coast, joining us, uh, which would be early in the morning or semi-early in the morning for him. He is a lecturer and the chair and founder of uh, the Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project. And uh, he's part of the Department on Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies and the Department of Comparative Ethic, Ethnic Studies. And we're speaking about the World Cup. We've seen a lot of this, I guess, hatred and racism um, targeting uh, Qatar and then also the players, the Moroccans, the Arab teams out of Europe. How do you compare that? Uh, and, and a lot of it done by uh, legitimate media outlets. How do you compare that with the American media outlets? It seemed like the Europeans were a lot more vicious. And why is the American uh, media outlets were not, I mean, <laughs> normally there's a lot of Islamophobia in American media and out of Hollywood. How is it that the Europeans were able to outdo the American media when it comes to this type of racism or Islamophobia? Well, maybe... Well, I think the United States, uh, because it does have close relations with Qatar, uh, the United States has a major military base in Qatar. uh, And as such, this 
have maybe mitigated uh, some of the coverage uh, in there. Uh, also that many U.S. companies uh, were, uh, in essence, uh, participating in the constructions, development, management, and also there is a whole security team uh, that was also um, hired from the United States. So I'm just saying these were possibilities uh, that the U.S. media uh, was less um, uh, in its racial uh, uh, discourse relative to the World Cup versus the Europeans. The third possibility is that soccer, as you know, in the United States, is not religion. Uh, both baseball, uh, football, and maybe basketball as religion. While Europe, that is the religion, uh, they consider soccer to be their domain. So there is a deep, I say there is a deep sense of uh, jealousy, a deep sense of uh, not belonging. And as such, seeing Qatar being uh, both given the ability to host and also doing, uh, uh, I would say, in terms of the actual organizing of the event and what unfolded, uh, it has been reported that it is the best organized World Cup, uh, World Cup uh, events to have taken place. Uh, with, again, maybe thinking of the British fans, we have not had a single British fan get arrested, uh, let alone get drunk or uh, cause uh, mayhem on the, on the, in the stands. So this deep uh, sense of ownership of the World Cup for Europeans and uh, the deep sense of jealousy about how this could happen in a place where we are not the one responsible. You have to think uh, that within European circles, the notion that we are the center of civilization, we are the universal norm, not that, that we are the particular that could be used, but they are the universal norm in civilization. And I think uh, that deep sense of uh, uh, deep Orientalism and resentment and jealousy uh, found its way uh, in the covering time, time and time again. Again, there are legitimate issues to be had in terms of critique. Every nation state has a bunch of issues to critique. And I often, again, am an equal opportunity. I will critique uh, any nation state, Gulf states and so on. But it seems that this took a very, very particular uh, track of using racism, Orientalism, and uh, some vicious attacks before the World Cup, during the World Cup, and now we see it also Post. after the World Cup. Was the, were these attacks, would you say, would you categorize them as uh, rooted in racism, Islamophobia, Orientalism. Uh, what you know? What's the? Uh, I guess what category does this fall into? Uh, under since, after all, you're one of the uh, your centers. One of the uh, centers that actually uh, defines what Islamophobia is, and how is Islamophobia different than racism? Uh, maybe that's a secondary question. Are they one and the well, same, or? I think uh, they are, are connected. Islamophobia is a type of racism that target expressions of Muslimness or uh, approaches to uh, expressions of Muslimness. So in that sense, Islamophobia is a type of racism, so it, it touches on racism. Orientalism is a particular tropes that are used to racialize and deal with the Arab and Muslim world as well as part of the global south in a particular way. So we spoke about uh, uh, Orientalist geography. So when 
what when we enter into coverage of the Muslim world, it's always passes through this geography. It was uh, in essence that that the mechanism and the ways that the coverage takes, it takes an orientalist uh, framing of it. Uh, in essence, if you watch uh, any of the Hollywood uh, movies of uh, Ali Din or uh, some of the coverage of Alibaba and so on, that tab is of the oriental geography, uh, uh, the focus on the uh, sheikh, and I wrote another piece about uh, this notion of the irresponsibility of the Arab, so the generosity of the Arab is not seen as an expression of cultural value originating from a long history of uh, you know, difficulties and circumstances, so honoring the guest and giving the guest uh, their right due is seen as foolish foolishness and therefore constantly uh, looking at the Arab with that lens rather than a praiseworthy character. It becomes a way to critique and constantly focuses on the lavishness of the sheikh and what the sheikh does. In the West, again, we have this whole program, the lifestyles of the rich and famous and increasingly the rich and infamous. But we don't say that relative to the Arab world. We actually cast the whole cultural norms of the society in terms of generosity and attending to the guests in the negative rather than seeing it as part of the positive. Interestingly enough, some of the people who were in Qatar, they were just taken back about the gentleness of people, the niceness that the people were offering them coffee, that the people in the streets, in their homes, giving them out food as they come out from the stadiums and the games. That was not the focus of the discussion. The focus is about the foolishness of the sheikh. So the sheikh becomes a way to actually demean the culture rather than to actually think of these elements that are uh, praiseworthiness. Right. Uh, so all these are part of the orientalist coverage that is rooted in a particular way where the Arab world gets to be seen negatively, even though in those elements that are uh, praiseworthy. So again, in the West, you could say that uh, we welcome the stranger. But when it comes to the Arab world, is they are fools because they're attending to the stranger. So you see that's the orientalist shift that takes place in the coverage. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 80.5. We're speaking to uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian. He's a University of California, Berkeley uh, lecturer and uh, is a founder of a center on Islam Islamophobia. Um, low resources may affect your audio. This is, what, this is my technology. My computer is giving me a message saying that, hey, my low resources may affect... Uh, the audio, so let me close some things here. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about my computer live on the radio. Um, but do you still so have some time, like, Doctor? Yeah. Sorry, do you still yes. ha have because? Uh, yeah, I do have some. No, I'm not asking oh. you. I'm asking Doctor Hatem if he still has <laughs> yes, time. Yes, I do. Oh, if you have I'm, some time. Oh, okay. ya Rabbi. <laughs> wow, what does Achi ya Rabbi mean? What is? You have Just to translate. Just ask Doctor Hatem the question. Ouch! Ouch for being with Ahmed on the show. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Was it, I mean, so this is like a trifecta of, I guess, Islamophobia, racism, and Orientalism coming together in this confluence. Uh, but some of it, were you surprised by some of the ignorance of some of these reporters? For example, I'm sure you've seen this ESPN article where after the semifinal loss, you know, of the historic, of this Cinderella story of Morocco, the team that was supposed to be out in the first round 
continue all the way to the, being one of the final four teams to make it that far, and finally coming very close to defeat France, but failing to do that. Uh, they had already defeated Spain and Portugal, and were taking the, you know the world by storm and uh, all this popularity. Then in their loss, they did what they did in all their wins. They go down and make this uh, sujud, as it's called in Arabic, where they put their head on the ground. Uh, an ESPN reporter said that they were actually bowing down so much bowing that they actually put their heads on the ground to thank the fans and their supporters. <laughs> But in reality, this is actually a form of giving thanks to God, a form of worship or giving, uh, I guess, being grateful to God. How is it that an ESPN reporter for one of for the biggest sports, I guess, uh, media company in the world, that a reporter that's been there for a whole month in Qatar doesn't recognize what sujud is, this prostration, and mischaracterizes it in an article saying that they were thanking um, you know, the fans by, I guess, you know, making this act of worship in Sujud. I mean, it, it seemed like it was just shocking. Was this like, you know, were you surprised by this level of ignorance? How, uh, how, do you, how did you interpret that and, and what is that a sign of? Well, a sign is that uh, the uh, uh, area or the field of journalism uh, has diminished considerably and reading and uh, cultural awareness is no longer a requirement. You're uh, not that I'm critiquing anyone here, but uh, uh, the recruitment for uh, uh, anchor men and anchor women and individuals to cover these uh, places are often focused first and foremost on how you look uh, and whether you're able to express things in 15 seconds and have a what you call a funny tone to it. And become relatable to your audience rather than uh, getting your information and your material correctly. The whole uh, area of investigative journalism is almost a dead enterprise as we speak. Uh, which again, much of the Western press, when it covers non-Western societies, it often preoccupies itself with its own image and tries to constantly uh, uh, report from its own uh, uh, narrowly constructed uh, lens and narrowly constructed orientalist lens. Uh, so I am, on the one hand, I'm not surprised in that in the continuity of the level of ignorance that are there, uh, but also surprised that at least uh, maybe you got it wrong on the first day, the first game, uh, but to have it wrong on the uh, uh, semifinal uh, is inexcusable uh, to actually be there. And to actually also be in Qatar to cover this uh, shows that you did not even go beyond leaving maybe the Hilton Hotel to ask a couple of people uh, about what was happening with the Moroccan team. So it's an indication that there was no homework done and the level of ignorance is just astounding uh, just in terms of what lack of cultural awareness and, uh, uh, and just getting the story correct. Um, you know, you would expect them to have an interview with right. one of the Moroccan uh, players say, mm -hmm. you know, we saw you prostrate in the first game and we saw you do this. Well, what is this uh, indicated uh, in terms of practice. More importantly, that 
this has been the norm for Muslim players uh, across European leagues for at least as far as I remember over 20 years yeah. and like for those Mo, even Mo Salah I think is very popular yeah Mohamed Salah from uh, Liverpool uh, even uh, Bogba from uh, the French team uh, they've been doing this for quite some time uh, again which shows that the uh, ESPN uh, reporter uh, possibly was watching uh, a whole different uh, <laughs> set of games uh, maybe you know but then, they were watching. But, then, but then they have editors it just shows you that like who still but, in the world does not know what it means to do that move uh, and you're still you'll, in be, you'll be you'll be surprised you'll yeah be so surprised. it's like on, on you know for the best is okay it's ignorance but then not for a journalist sent there to somebody cover. had actually said commented online i don't remember who it is saying that a journalist maybe it didn't even fathom in their mind that a muslim would actually thank god for losing that they're still grateful in loss because the concept one for many of these journalists of yeah. God existing doesn't it, it, God doesn't even exist. But why would somebody give thanks? And you know, yeah. it's oftentimes like okay, Messi even when he scores, he's thanking God when he scores. But when do you think like these guys are thanking God and praying to God even in their loss? Their that's something that's very different than yeah, what yeah, Europeans are be used surprising. to. You'll be surprised that the both the reporter, the editor. Uh, the uh, writer groups, <laughs> like there's a whole team that's there. And again, I would say it not only for ESPN, but uh, uh, thinking of the Danish uh, TV right. uh, segment. Uh, if the reporter himself or the anchor person who's talking uh, is uh, saying some of the most uh, racist comments, uh, where is the editor that is sitting behind? Uh, where are the other team that is there usually there's about five to ten people that are within uh, the team and they didn't come out immediately and actually say we are sorry we're comparing this to the to we can bear moroccan players and their mothers to monkeys we're sorry uh and this report is completely wrong actually in their apology which i wrote in a whole thing they did not apologize they said the perception of some of our audience, meaning that we're blaming the audience for having their own perception. Right. They did not so, audience. You I'm better sorry, ch- correct your perception. Yeah. You know. So, so they actually spoke about the perception of the audience. The second not is the they said thing. that that the second they said that the reporter was trying to make a joke, and I didn't know what the joke was. Again, if he's trying to tell us that's his family picture, that's understandable. But that was not the case. Mm-hmm. So he said that they. That, that he was trying to 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 make a joke and uh, it did not actually land correctly. So in essence, the perception and the joke, and then lastly says that whatever, then, you know, we're sorry that uh, this went through. So the first, almost like a three step uh, in to shift the blame from the reporter uh, to the audience. If it was any then, other group, the guy would have been fired on the scene. And especially in not, Europe, they have very strict uh, laws against anti-Semitism, even in France and in all these European countries. Correctly so. Correctly, correctly so, so rightfully so. But yeah. they selectively, they purposely don't apply yeah. the same thing when it comes to black people or Muslims or Arabs. Yeah, but there, you see, we don't belong to the human category. So European yeah. human rights discourse is centered on who is a human. The human is a Western European white person that has been extended now to the Jewish subject, but it does not include yeah. those who are but, stricken with subhumanness. Black, it wasn't always Muslims. that case because for a long, these are the same 
uh, uh, countries sure. that subjugated Jews to what happened and looked the other oh, way absolutely. while the Holocaust was happening for all those years. And then they want to talk. I mean, it's like when they talk, what's so infuriating, these same groups that were like, for example, because of the waving, and maybe Samar will talk to you about this, about the Palestine presence there. Uh, Germany was, for example, told Morocco because they're waving so many Palestinian flags. Hey, Morocco is not Palestine, you know, kind of thing. Well, you're the country who did that. And they're trying to <laughs> tell them that you're anti-Semitic. And it doesn't you exist. are the source of the original anti-Semitism that has plagued the world, this European countries. Anti-Semitism did not start in the Muslim world. Yeah. But you know, well, Doctor, you, uh, sorry, Dr. Hatem, but I can't help say, actually, uh, people in Denmark should be very uh, uh, worried that expression of love between a mom and a son and mm-hmm. a son and a mom is depicted as animalistic. I mean, is do they have no feelings there? They should be studying that really small uh, picture that this guy put because is compassion and motherly love uh, compared to animals now? Well, the thing is that you have to actually, uh, we could have like maybe multiple programs to try to investigate uh, the persistent and the depth of racist discourse within European societies. And you have to, again, take a look and say that there is a distinction they make. Uh, This is, again, intellectually, epistemologically between what they consider to be the European culture society and the non-European culture and society. So in this sense, whenever they speak about non-European societies, they always introduce, again, uh, deep down, evolutionary theory is then on biological racism. So, in essence, the projection immediately goes to describe them in a non-human dimensionality. And up to the early part of the 20th century, Europe had, uh, you know, in certain countries, in uh, the Netherlands, in France, in Belgium, they had the concept of what we call human zoos, where you could actually go in order to touch and see the non-European societies or non-European, non-human subjects. So that was at the depth of this phenomena. The fact today they have managed to engage in a public relations framing on diversity, equity, and inclusion should not preclude us to understand that lurking in the depth of the European society is this notion that there is a biological distinction between the European man, woman, and the non-European man and woman who are subhuman. That is at the core. If we don't understand this, then all these dynamics relative to their uh, representation as well as policies uh, would have no meaning whatsoever. Just to, to, to contextualize this. As they were talking about labor rights and migrant worker rights in Qatar, rightly so, there are thousands of rotten human beings, and I'm saying rotten in here as description, that are sitting in European camps for these migrants that are not allowed into the country in Spain, in uh, Greece, in Malta. In uh, even in France, if you go down Calais, they are just uh, out there in the open. Daily, there are um, migrants that are drowning in the Mediterranean or the English Channel, and it's illegal for any fisherman 
or anyone to help a drowning migrant, their, their boat could be confiscated and they are subject to criminal prosecution for aiding a migrant. That is today in Europe. So while they're speaking about human rights uh, in relations to Qatar and the violations that are taking place and so on, in Europe itself, the so-called the abode of the civilized, there is this constant uh, uh, almost dehumanization and structural elimination. And that's again erasing the specificity of the human in this in this in this sense. So that's where the coverage emerges from. It's persistent, constant, despite all this notion that uh, Europe welcomes diversity. They don't. They have a public relations discourse that have understood how to navigate it. Mm -hmm. But at the core of it, there is a profound distinction between the human, European, and the subhuman that is non-European. Quickly, doctor, because uh, we're running out of time and this is such an interesting conversation. Yesterday, The Nation magazine published a very interesting piece by Tony Karen and Daniel Levy. And the title was What Qatar's World Cup Tell Us About the World 2022. I don't know if you agree with them, but they're saying that also one angle is jealousy, that the people of the South were finally able to attend these matches and be in one area, spend less money. So you have people from the global south finally have their own World Cup, a very, very popular sport in their cultures and that the US and Europe are just so jealous because they are no longer the center of the universe. What do you think? Well, I I mentioned earlier there is a deep sense of jealousy and uh, deep sense of how they could do without us almost being the ones that are doing it and undertaking this. Now, on on one dimension, the fact that soccer right now is the global uh, game that it is, definitely we have to say colonization had a lot to do with it. But that's a separate critique that we could set aside. But there is definitely a shift. The fact that you have a uh, ability of large segments from the global south to be able to make it uh, to the game. Uh, if you remember, initially the uh, uh, the press uh, trying trying to uh, say that Qatar is paying fans to come into the game, uh, as if in any uh, type of uh, sport undertaking, there isn't quote, corporate sponsorship, that you fill the seats with corporate sponsorship. But that's a side issue, in essence, to say that uh, because Qatar is a small country, they had to bring in and pay people to come in to attend the games. What reality happened is that we had large number of fan base from across the world that came in there. The infrastructure was uh, really top-notch. The, they brought in the... Uh, uh, massive uh, boats uh, to accommodate people, uh, hotels on the water, uh, all of the infrastructure in there. Uh, There wasn't any type of uh, uh, crime that took place, any fights, that all of it was actually, uh, in essence, reflective of a positive experience from large number of individuals that people... Sorry, doctor, I don't mean to interrupt, but really we're running out of time. And I want to thank you so much, Dr. Hatem Bazian, continuing lecturer at Berkeley University. Thank you. For being on True Talk. Uh, We need to wish our uh, listeners a Merry Christmas um, uh, very soon. Are you you celebrating Christmas? You wanted to play this clip. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, everybody. It's Amr Zahar.
Now's a good time to remind you all that you are celebrating the birthday of a Palestinian. That's right, Jesus is one of us. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. He wasn't from Kentucky. Uh, he didn't look like Brad Pitt. He looked like DJ Khaled, minus 200 pounds. In fact, we've made some of the most famous names famous. If you're named Mary or Maria, you're named after the Virgin Mary, a Palestinian. Anne, Saint Anne, Mary's mom, Jesus' grandma, John, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, John's mom, George, Saint George in the third century, he came from Palestine too. The apostles, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, all Palestinians. Of course, if you're named Jesus, you're named after a Mexican. Palestine has so much history. In America, somebody says, this building is 100 years old. Then you're sitting in Jerusalem eating a falafel, and you ask the owner, tell WM me about this Tampa. restaurant. And he says, well, Jesus ate here. Jesus fought against occupation and tyranny. He was exiled and ridiculed. And he was eventually vindicated and became a total 